Hey, listeners, welcome to a special episode of The Goods Film Podcast. I'm Dan, and we got Brian with us as usual, but we also have a special guest, friend of the pod, Nate. Why don't you say hi, guys? How you doing, guys? Hi, everyone. Welcome, Nate. Anything you want to tell us about yourself, Nate, before we dive into the, the week's pick, which was a movie that you selected for us to watch? Just that I love movies and I'm excited to talk about them. It's possible that you've watched more movies than anyone I've ever met or had conversations with. (laughs) I don't know if that's true and I don't know if that makes my taste any better, but I'll take it. (laughs) You did tell me a little bit earlier that you've seen every film noir ever recorded. So that might be true. Yeah. (laughs) Um. The movie that you picked for us to watch is The Apartment, written and directed by Billy Wilder from 1960. So I had initially pitched, I don't even remember what it was. I think an affair to remember. Yeah. I wanted something New Year's-y themed. And I knew that that had a New Year's moment. And you came back, you said, now let's check out this one, The Apartment. And uh, I'm glad you did, because it was a very interesting watch. And it, it very much culminated in New Year's, as we will get to in a minute. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that that was intentional. Uh, I don't have to stretch to make this one a holiday movie. Uh, listeners, I will remind you, and Nate, I will let you know that we have a running gag on the goods where Brian tries to make the case that everything is a Christmas movie in some way. And again, <laughs> this one was pretty easy. Well, to be fair, it started in the first week of December, and now we're kind of beyond that. But (laughs) maybe we don't have to stop. Maybe it'll just keep going. So what's the biggest stretch that you've made that you've called a Christmas movie? Twelve Monkeys. (laughs) Most of it takes place in December 1996. Fair enough. (laughs) And, of course, it's got Bruce Willis in it, so that's a big good Right, so anything Bruce Willis is automatically a Christmas movie. Right. Because he was once in Die Hard. (laughs) <laughs> that took place on Christmas. So it's like the the transitive property that it goes from from that movie to Bruce exactly. Willis to anything that he's in. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, The Sixth Sense is secretly a Christmas movie. <laughs> For sure. There you go. So uh, as mentioned, this film is by Billy Wilder, who ranks among the revered American comic writers and directors in, in film. Um, so in the past, I've mentioned the, the website they shoot pictures, don't they? Which is kind of the er list of collecting all top movie ever lists, top movies of the decades list, cramming it through some algorithm to come up with a master ranking of tens of thousands of movies, but really there's the top 1000. And then they also have a computational method to evaluate um, directors and Wilder has is ranked as the number 16 most accomplished director in cinema history by critical acclaim. And five of his movies are in the top 1000, three of which are actually in the top 100, which is pretty crazy. It's some like it hot, this being the apartment. And what was the last one? Sunset Boulevard. Yes. And Sunset Boulevard. 
I would say he's interesting in part because he is both a writer and a director and is really known for kind of both aspects of that. He's responsible for one of the most iconic visuals in cinema history. That is Marilyn Monroe's white dress blowing up from sewer breeze. And also one of its most iconic lines, nobody's perfect, the last line of Some Like It Hot. And yeah, he had a pretty long career. We were just, before we started recording, looking at his career, he recorded movies from the 30s to the late 70s. And he did mostly comedies and satires, but he did some film noir. His stuff's got a lot of drama in it too. So he, he's uh, accomplished. Um, he's also in cinema history kind of important because he was one of the several key f- figures in the downfall of a specific early era of cinema ruled by the Hayes Code, which was a notoriously restrictive set of rules about what could and could not be included in cinema, especially during the the studio days. But one of the last movies that requested a code approval did not get it, went to theaters anyway and was a smashing success, was Some Like It Hot. And that was when studios were starting to say, hmm, maybe this code thing isn't quite as good for business as we initially thought. So I don't know, just kind of a pretty fascinating figure that I've enjoyed reading about as I watched this movie and did some research for this pod. Brian, what is your experience with Billy Wilder prior to this? So this was not a name that rang bells for me. I wouldn't have been able to tell you who Billy Wilder was. So I kind of dropped the ball on that one. I thought I had not seen any of his films before, but I have seen Sunset Boulevard a couple times. And so it was good to branch out and take in another one of his movies. What about you, Nate? How, how deep have you gone in the Wilder filmography? Um, I've gone a few. I, I'd say I like him. I don't necessarily adore him, but I definitely like uh, a lot of his stuff. Um, Double Indemnity is my favorite it's interesting that you mentioned the Hayes Code because I think that's a movie that is probably hurt by the existence of the Hayes Code when it came out. I think the ending is kind of a concession to that, and I always kind of wish for a different ending when I watch it, but the movie still plays really well. Um, I like Witness for the Prosecution a lot. I like Some Like It Hot um, and Double Indemnity a lot. Um, and The Apartment has a lot going for it, too. So I'm a fan. Cool. My experience is that I thought this was my very first Billy Wilder film, although as we were talking about it, I remembered I actually did watch very early in college when I was like 18 years old, I watched Sunset Boulevard. So certainly one of my first and my first in in, in more than a decade. So Sunset Boulevard is just a classic, like early, like getting into serious film, film nerd movie. I feel like it's one of the first of those for a lot of people yeah agreed i feel like people will pull quotes from that one to be like title headings and stuff in textbooks totally it's one of those movies about movies that movie fans like so much because they like movies so they love movies about movies love yeah makes sense A quick tangent on that one of my things i always complain to my wife about when reading books is it's the same concept, but people in books, like main characters in books, it's just 
always one of their characteristics is that they love books and they have some obscure <laughs> classic that they're reading or something or they especially in young adult like some book makes them feel figure out how they should feel about the world and i like it when uh books uh spite that trope and there's this one it's just like an obscure book it was some comedy young adult comedy book called carter finally gets it and the protagonist is a dumb jock in that and he kind of scorns books and i i just loved it so much that that they wrote a protagonist who actively did not like books and made fun of them and I, it made me enjoy that that all the more so yeah th there's definitely way too many movie characters who want to be a writer or who love writing and like i get it like if you're a writer and you're writing the script like you know, you know how to work with that, but <laughs> like, it gets annoying. And like, I can, I can see right through that pretty easily. Like, okay. Like, does this guy really want to be a writer? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a double-edged sword or it, it can go too far in either direction because, you know, they say, write what you know, but they also say, don't navel gaze. So, right. <laughs> so, I mean, every time Stephen King's got a writer character, it's like, well, which is this? <laughs> little A, little B. So The Apartment, it was released around the peak popularity of Wilder's career one year after Some Like It Hot, which I think was his biggest commercial success, but was a huge hit. And uh, this movie was also well-received, also a big hit, and also very controversial because it's got a lot of nasty, satirical, gross guys in it, uh, especially the kind of blasé on the surface attitude towards adultery I think was a little more direct than what was common in cinema at that time it feels like the precursor the precursor to Mad Men in a lot of ways that's a good point it's like a, a period piece for Mad Men except it was like at the made at the time of it yeah right. contemporary Mad Men I was thinking you know they say somebody looks like Marilyn Monroe but in 1960 Marilyn Monroe looked like Marilyn Monroe. She was right. still alive. <laughs> President Kennedy was still alive. Right. The Apartment was not only a commercial success, but it was an awards success. In fact, it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is our first... Oh, no, it's not our first. I was going to say it's our first Best Picture winner, but we talked about Parasite back very early in the show. Right. So it's our second Best Picture winner. There you go. Yeah, so it was nominated for 10 Oscars. It won it for Best Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, I guess written directly for the screen. I guess they typically call that original screenplay these days. Uh, best Art Direction, I guess that's different from Cinematography. Yes, it is because it was nominated for but did not win Cinematography. Yeah. Well, Art Direction is like the sets and stuff, right? Gotcha, yeah, okay. And it did win Best Editing. It, uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine were both nominated, as was Jack Crucian for Best Supporting Actor. I assume he's the, the sleazy boss guy. He's the, no, he's the doctor. The neighbor. Oh, he's the doctor. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, the boss is played by Fred McMurray, who had a lot of roles around this time as a leading man in live-action Disney movies. He was the absent-minded professor in the two Flubber movies. He's also in Brian's film favorite, number 33, Follow Me Boys, about a scoutmaster who leads a Boy Scout troop. 
Yeah, he had this reputation as like always being the nice, wholesome guy. But I always knew him from Double Indemnity and this, where he's very sleazy in both. So I never had trouble buying him as as um, Sheldrake in this movie. Yeah, it was funny seeing him be the asshole this time around. I already mentioned this. This movie is in the top 100 on They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? In fact, it is ranked number 56. That makes it the highest that we've done in our show's history, beating out Night of the Living Dead. Um, so, yeah, this is widely acknowledged as a masterpiece even today, it, it seems. so. Yeah, I, I always see it ranked really highly on, you know, lists of best romantic comedies or best holiday movies or, you know, best Billy Wilder movies. So that's why right. that would be fun to talk about. Cool. So the two leads are, I think I already mentioned this, Jack Lemon, and he plays a character named C.C. Baxter, who goes by Bud, and Shirley MacLaine as Fran Kubelik, who is an elevator operator. I would say the third lead is Fred McMurray, who plays Jeff Sheldrake, a executive at the company that uh, Baxter works for. So I'm ready to kind of dive into the recap. Are you guys ready? Go for it, please. Uh, the apartment opens with a monologue from C.C. Bud Baxter, reflecting on the enormity of New York City, in particular, the 31,000 people who work at Consolidated Life, an insurance company. And through both this monologue and kind of the visuals on screen, it's very clear that the corporate dehumanization of all of the characters depicted is going to be a major theme of this story. Uh, it doesn't beat around the bush on that one. We see him as one cog in a huge sea of workers and desks, pushing pens and punching numbers. In one of the more iconic and striking visuals of the film, it's kind of a, a high shot down onto this just sprawling, it's like an ocean of, of desks and people frantically punching numbers, uh, plugging things in. So. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the visuals, but that for me, right from the start, was very striking and very interesting. Yeah, there's a, another movie that I'm going to have as one of my selections somewhere along the line, a silent movie from 1928 called The Crowd, directed by King Vidor. And this opening really reminded me of that movie, which is kind of super bleak all throughout and I guess this is a spoiler, but the moral is that like individuality is impossible. And it also opens in a big office building with a sea of desks. Yeah, there's also a shot in American Beauty that's very clearly inspired by the apartment with uh, at Kevin Spacey's office. It's funny you mentioned that one anecdote in the Wikipedia article is that Kevin Spacey dedicated his Oscar, I think to Jack Lemmon. Mm-hmm. I mean, through this performance, because the apartment and Wilder in general were major influences on the creation of American Beauty. I will say, also in this office with the sprawling desks, everybody who works there has got a typewriter on their desk, and they have this other machine there that I have no idea what it is. Uh, we looked up the brand name. I think it's like a early computer or maybe it punches cards that go in a computer, you know, in a huge room downstairs. Oh, interesting. But 
like some of the time the thing was moving on its own and they didn't seem to be doing anything to it. So I don't know if they had a way to communicate with each other or what was going on. But <laughs> and then at the end of the day, they put them all in these little like knit bags. And so each each of these weird proto computers has its own knit bag over top of it at the end of the workday. And it was an interesting peek back in time. That's cool. I figured some sort of adding machine or something, but that, that is interesting. I didn't really think about it. <clears throat> so at closing time at the office, Bud hangs around late and then he heads over to his apartment. He's the last one to leave the office. When he gets to his apartment, it's late, it's dark out, it's rainy. He looks up to the window and there seems to be some sort of wild partying going on inside. And then we go and we get a peek in there and there's another man who will come to learn as an executive at the company, Consolidated Life, has brought a mistress to Bud's apartment. And over the next several scenes, it emerges that Bud is a very lonely and quiet man. He doesn't have any love life. He's a total pushover, kind of a suck up to the bosses. And he's somehow arranged this deal. We don't see the, the buildup to it being set up, but he has this deal with several executives where they get to use this department as a private facility for these executives to gain, engage in affairs with pretty young women away from their families, away from their homes. And in exchange, Bud gets positive work reviews that will help him in his career. Adding to the, the complexity and the wrinkles of this is that Bud is hiding all of this from his numerous, fairly nosy neighbors who have somehow not figured out exactly what's going on, but know that there's always women, always partying, booze bottles coming out of the apartment. In particular, there's his landlady and there's Dr. Dreyfus who lives a couple of doors down. Uh, he's, he's a doctor and his wife lives there too. Bud's always kind of exchanging comments with them as he's walking in and out of the apartment. I got to say, I did not totally buy that they would be that observant, but also not have figured out that it was not Bud doing all of this. It took me a moment to get over that suspension of disbelief, particularly as it kept happening throughout the film. But it works for the premise, I think. It's a stretch. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're hearing noises at night through the wall... I feel like it's kind of an Occam's razor thing. It's like, will you take those extra logical steps to figure out that actually it's a bunch of different people being cycled through and sharing a key and... Well, but they're always coming close to seeing the truth. Like at one point, you know, the doctor sees the woman, but not the man, you know, who is not Baxter, you know, so if he'd seen the other man, he would have realized the truth, you know? So, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch. That's true. Right, and he, they always seem to see Bud walking in, but for whatever reason, they've never seen any of the other men walking in. I don't know. So one night, as Bud is going to sleep after having taken a sleeping pill, Bud gets a call from one of the executives who he's with a woman at a bar. He's got an immediate need to use that apartment for a hookup. Even though it's not on the schedule, he's, he's got to make it happen. Well, she looks like Marilyn Monroe, so, you know. Oh, that's right. Exactly, yeah. I forgot that that was the line. I remember Brian brought that up. That it looks like Marilyn Monroe. That's actually from this this movie. That's right. She would have been, that would have been like the equivalent of saying, I don't know, who's a who's a hot actress right now. 
like looks like Kim Kardashian or something like that. That's probably a little outdated, but you, you know the gist. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that Billy Wilder also made some like it hot. I didn't know that before going in to record here. Yeah, and seven year itch too. But the next day, uh, Bud, who slept outside, has this nasty cold. He's all snotty. He goes inside and this kind of triggers a conversation with one of the women who works the elevator at Consolidated Life. Her name is Fran Kubelik, and she seems to be sort of a resistant object of affection of many of these lecherous executives, like uh, one of the seedy guys kind of gives her a pat on the bottom as he walks out of the elevator, which for which she has a retort. And she seems to be a little bit of elusive and not kind of giving in to the, their affections. But it's pretty clear that Bud also has warm feelings towards Fran and she actually seems to recognize him as a fairly decent person and uh, is, is nice to him as well. She, I think she compliments that he always takes his hat off going into the elevator, which is a period thing. I mean, elevator women in general is a period thing, but that in particular was very much a thing that you would never have a conversation about in 2020. Yeah, I wonder how the need for elevator operators ever arose. Like, did they have more of a actual function at the very start? Make sure that nobody like got sucked through the floor. Uh, but it seems like even by this point in 1960, they're just pushing buttons. Also, can I just say, this is always a pet peeve of mine in movies or old movies. Being out in the cold doesn't give you a cold. And you always see that in film, like spending time out in the cold is, doesn't make you sick. Oh yeah, 100%. That's like always a thing like, oh, you can't be out in the cold, you're gonna be sick. And then here, you know, he spends the night or at least into the wee hours out and they call it and then he's sick the next day like that's not really how it works but yeah. <laughs> anyway that's kind yep. of funny are we ready to talk about the cold i think Dan has <laughs> i i have plenty of feelings about the cold <laughs> so brian you've what's the phrase you use Squi squipped me out is that the phrase you use i think i said squick 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 Yes, I don't know out. what that word is exactly, but you've used it before when something just kind of makes your skin crawl and makes, makes you cringe. For me, the cold was that in this movie. I, like, he's snotty and he's, like, coughing. <laughs> he's and, coughing on everybody like, in the elevator. Faces and, like, just in general, that's gross. But after the year that we've had, man, <laughs> that I was, like, I couldn't watch the screen almost. It was, it was pretty rough. And it didn't really end up meaning anything. Like, I guess it kind of helped trigger that conversation. But mostly it was just him being snotty and coffee on screen for, uh, you know, 15 minutes or something. It wasn't a short day that was depicted there. So I don't know. No, it didn't seem to phase anyone when he's in the elevator, like hacking up his lungs. Like no one seemed concerned. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The cartoonish presentation of cold symptoms that way doesn't phase me quite the same way. Like when, you know, it's like every letter becomes a D or whatever. Oh, I got a cold. <laughs> cold in my nob. I don't know. Just like simplify all the letters. It gets telegraphed to me. It, it just, it seems over the top. But I will say I watched this with my mom and she was very bothered when he's like sitting in the office with the boss and piling up a pile of tissues on the desk. <laughs> yeah, it's gross. Like, like snotty like, tissues. No, COVID. No. <laughs> Even before COVID, he's like a boss. 
I was going to mention that later, but like in that scene in the office, like he's really playing up that cold as if he has the plague, which I mean, I know nowadays maybe that makes more sense to us, but he is really going for it. And yeah, he's got tissues everywhere and he can't even get four words out without stopping to blow his nose or cough or like, this is like the head of the company, man. Like get it together. Of course, he's been getting all these good reviews from, the higher ups because he lets them into the apartment. So the, the head of personnel, who I guess is the HR guy who determines who gets or does not get promotions. Uh, his name is Jeff Sheldrake and he calls Bud into his office. This is the day that Bud has the cold and Bud of course, at this point is expecting good news because of all the good reviews coming in. Sheldrake basically immediately and astutely realizes that Bud didn't get those coincidental good reviews all at the same time, just due to sheer performance on the job. He's actually a part of some sort of scheme on behalf of the, the executives. For a minute, it looks like and sounds like Sheldrake is about to reprimand him. And uh, Bud thinks this too. But instead, Sheldrake wants to get in on it. He wants to offer Bud a promotion on the implied condition that Sheldrake can use the apartment too. Part of this is he, Sheldrake gives Bud a pair of Broadway tickets. The Music Man, I think it was. Is that right? The, yeah, it was The Music Man, which I looked it up and that came out in 1957. So some more topical media of the time. <laughs> and what really stuck out to me was he goes to the Majestic Theater to see it. And Majestic is where Phantom eventually went in and still occupies that theater to this day. Oh, wow. I was going to say that also the music man came up in the high school musical episode because they mentioned Mary and the librarian. And I didn't know what, if that was like a real thing or not. And you knew that it was the music man, right? Right. Yeah. She's the female lead. Gotcha. So and now he's in a fit of good spirits but on his way back down to his, his cube, or it's not even really a cube, to his desk, asks Fran, the elevator lady, to join him at the play that he now has these tickets for. And she agrees, but she explains that first she needs to go meet with a former fling prior to the musical. So they make plans to meet at the musical. But lo and behold, Fran's former fling is in fact Sheldrake who now has the means to re-engage the affair because he has access to Bud's apartment. And Sheldrake successfully convinces Fran that, oh, he's going to leave his wife for real. He's going to divorce her and brings her up to the apartment. And Fran stands up, Bud. Bud is not too deterred, though. There's a holiday party shortly after. It's on Christmas Eve. And Bud is in really high spirits because he got his promotion and an acquisition of a lovely new bowler hat and he's, he's feeling great, but what is the title? Like the, the position he got, it's like second junior executive assistant or something. Like it's really not that impressive of a title, which made me laugh. This party seems really happening though. That's true. You don't have office parties like this anymore, especially not in the office. It made me think of Wolf of wall street, which Nate and I saw together way back in the day when it was in theaters when they do that big kind of office party in the peak of their decadence, but there's booze going around, everybody's celebrating. And it's a happening Christmas Eve party, I agree. 
Yeah, my brother immediately brought up Wolf of Wall Street, too. He said, so do you think they had crazier office parties in the 60s or in the 80s? <laughs> so at this party, Bud kind of ropes in Fran to, to join the party. And kind of around the same time, within a scene or two of each other, Fran gets wind from Sheldrake's secretary that she is far from Sheldrake's first mistress. And he always makes the same promise that he's going to leave his wife. But of course he never does. And he goes from one woman to the next using and disposing of them like the sleeves bag that he is. Meanwhile, from a mirror that he had one point found at his apartment, Bud figures out that Fran is in fact Sheldrake's mistress who has been coming to the apartments. He is kind of heartbroken about that because he really had developed feelings for Fran and he's kind of really depressed at this point. Yeah, this is a huge oof moment because Bud obviously is facilitating this whole thing. Exactly. So he's, he's put the cuckold horns on his own brow. Well said. That night um, at Bud's apartment, Fran, who has, has joined Sheldrake, tries to break up with him. And the final straw is when he's kind of not listening to her at all. He's constantly dismissive of her. Oh, don't feel bad on Christmas. Like not really caring at all what she's saying. And then he just kind of decides to leave. He's got to catch the train. And he said, I couldn't be seen shopping for a Christmas present for you. So here, have this $100 bill. And it's a thoroughly denigrating moment for Fran. One of the sleaziest things I've ever seen a character do in a movie, honestly. I know. Coming on the heels of, of her giving him the nice gift, just... You talk about something like you couldn't watch earlier when he was coughing. Like, I almost couldn't watch that scene because it's just so painful. It was bad. But how much was $100 in 1960? I mean, <laughs> a lot, but that almost makes it worse. <laughs> True. And how much was a record? Probably like $2 or something. But it's the thought that counts. Because it was really thoughtful. It was like, oh, this is where they always go to eat. And they always like the piano man. And it's, it's a good gift. So when Sheldrake leaves, Fran is crying in the mirror. She's trying to recompose herself. And it seems like she's about to go, but then she notices the $100 bill and kind of breaks down again. And right at that moment also notices a bottle of sleeping pills. And it seems like at that moment, she decides to do something and the scene cuts away from her. Bud during all of this is really devastated. Seems to kind of have come to the grips with the fact that he's going to be eternally lonely uh, despite his apparent step up in life at the company. And he goes to a bar, because what else are you going to do on Christmas Eve night? But go to a bar and drink a shit ton of martinis. He lays out all the olives on the little toothpicks. And while he's there, one of my favorite kind of little vignettes that ends up not meaning all that much, but just was a delight to watch, in this massive depressive funk, connects with this similarly lonely woman. And they just have this pathetically bleak exchange and dance near a jukebox until closing time. They don't even make eye contact as they're talking. It's, it's just kind of this little depressing mini quote unquote romance. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the best things about the movie is it really captures that vibe of being lonely around the holidays and how that feels. Um, and how it's that's so much worse than being lonely other times of the year. <laughs> and so everything between them at the bar, I think, works. Agreed. Although one interesting thing about the holidays, since you brought it up, 
is that it's pretty striking to me how this is a black and white movie. In fact, it was the last black and white best picture winner until the artist back in what it was in 2011 or whatever. But that means on the one hand, it really works because it's very muted and detached. But on the other hand, the constant reminders of the holiday stuff, the lights and the trees aren't quite as glaring and right in your face. I almost wish it was in color so that you would always have the bright Christmas lights and green Christmas trees as the contrast to kind of the everything that is depraved going on inside the apartment. Nah, I want more movies in black and white. I don't want this in color. I'm sure we'll come back to it, but I was really struck by how much this felt like a bookend film or, or a transition film between two eras. This movie was at the same time as The Twilight Zone, which I'm a big fan of, but it definitely feels way more modern. I recognize some actors from The Twilight Zone and other films of the period, and this just strikes me as edgier and more contemporary to things that we would recognize. It, yeah, it really just does seem like a last vestige of the black and white. Also came out the same year as Psycho, which of course is in black and white. Another movie that feels extremely modern for the era. But another movie that would be much worse in color. Yes, that, uh, that one I definitely agree with. When will we get the shot-for-shot shot Vince Vaughn remake of The Apartment? Ah, uh, heaven help us. <laughs> Bud decides to bring this woman. Her name is Ms. Margie McDougal, which is a delightfully silly name. Uh, brings her home to his apartment for a late-night rendezvous. And when he gets there, he gradually discovers that there's evidence of someone else here. And in fact passed out in his bed is Fran's body and she won't stir and he eventually notices the empty sleeping pill bottle nearby and so he abruptly kicks out Margie from the apartment summons the neighbor Dr. Dreyfus a frequent commentator on Bud's activities like we've talked about and here's just one more thing after some struggle and I gotta say it's like not a short rendition of this and it's not it's like fairly explicit like she's vomiting and stuff but they they managed to resuscitate her but she's in a pretty terrible state and she needs to stay in place in bud's bed for the next couple of days and bud kind of needs to take care of her it was lucky for bud that everybody in this building besides him seems to be an exaggerated jewish stereotype (laughs) i did notice that it means you can get a hold of them on Christmas. I didn't think about it from that angle, but yeah, the, the doctor is very much, he brings in Yiddish and I definitely uh, coded as being a, a Jewish working man. So Bud does indeed care for Fran over the next several days. And they actually start to form a little bit of a bond over the shared shittiness of their lives, particularly in the realm of romance. Bud gets this, tells a story brilliantly delivered by Jack Lemon of a suicide attempt of his own that, that went wrong where he accidentally shot himself in the leg. And during this, we get this moment that I just thought was instantly great and iconic, which is where Bud, who's like kind of starting to relish this fantasy of having Fran around in his life um, as Fran is in the midst of an emotional spiral 
And he's like, oh, let's play cards together. And they, they start to play Jin Rami, but she's like going through this sad monologue of her life story. Just a very striking juxtaposition. And even as this is happening, Bud, who we've seen as the spineless yes man throughout this whole film, he's working to clean up the whole mess of Fran's suicide attempt and break up with Sheldrake. And he starts to see that perhaps this could align with his own being with Fran. Um, over at Consolidated Life, though, uh, where, where Bud has been out, some of the executives there piece together that Fran is spending time with Bud. And they, of course, assume it's a wild romantic weekend. And when Fran's brother-in-law storms into the company where, you know, where Fran works, they don't really hesitate to sending this like really angry guy over to Bud's house to, to get the crap kicked out of him. Yes, yeah, Fran's brother-in-law, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. And he's a cab driver. They keep mentioning that he's a cab driver, but yeah. I will say, I, I've got some well, questions about that part, but I gotta say, props to that actor. I like The second he was on screen, I was like, he's gonna punch somebody in the face. Yeah, like, scary dude. He gave off the right vibe immediately. <laughs> Agreed. At Bud's, the brother-in-law does indeed come over and there's like kind of a weird misunderstanding as like they're trying to figure out the best way to message what actually happened, where I think it was supposed to be like an abortion reference with the doctor being there. Like, well, what's going on here? But then it kind of starts to come out a little bit more. Uh, but Bud takes the fall for the breakup for the thing that would have caused the depression and Fran's brother-in-law gets some good licks on him. But it does seem to maybe draw Fran and Bud a little bit together, almost ironically, that this kind of went so poorly. And he, he preps, he's, he's all ready to uh, spell out to Sheldrake that uh, he, he, Sheldrake doesn't have to worry about Fran anymore. Because, of course, Bud wants to make her his boyfriend. But right at that moment, it turns out Sheldrake has been kicked out of his house by his wife, who has caught on to the uh, all the affairs kind of going on on the side. So that, of course, clears the way for Sheldrake to stay with Fran. And Fran, we've kind of seen throughout, kind of fell in love with Sheldrake, which I didn't entirely buy. I don't know. It was like, it's kind of hard to, to feel that chemistry there, but... I think we'll have to talk about that later. Fran uh, definitely still has kind of these lingering feelings for Sheldrake, and... She goes back to him, although as we see her with him, she's kind of got this, like, I've given in defeatist look about her. And Sheldrake, who is extremely grateful that Bud was such a good sport about the whole suicide attempt of his mistress that he refused to acknowledge or deal with situation, gives Bud yet another promotion. He's now all the way being up to the assistant personnel manager. He's the number two behind Sheldrake. And so from a career perspective, this is all paid off for Bud. Uh, Bud is of course kind of still, still heartbroken that he, that Fran slipped away again. Sheldrake at this point has been kicked out of his house and tries to get the key to the apartment one last time. So that's somewhere that he could bring Fran, but this is the final straw for Bud. He snaps, he decides to at last take a principled stand on his love for Fran. He refuses to give Sheldrake the key and he immediately resigns. And this is on New Year's Eve. So now we cut to kind of two things as it counts down to midnight. One is 
Bud is packing up. He's decided to move on from the apartment and all the, the nastiness that has occurred within it and around it. And he notices the gun that had previously been mentioned in the suicide attempt as he's sort of packing up. Meanwhile, Fran is at a big party with Sheldrake, which looks like quite a fun party, I got to say. I kind of wanted to be there. And uh, here's how Bud resigned and kind of figures out why that it was because Bud was finally taking a stand on, on Fran and on the, the sleaziness of, of consolidated life. One more quick tangent. Consolidated life is just such a great name for a company that sucks life and humanity out of everything <laughs> it touches. Consolidated life. It's so good. Definitely. And right after midnight, they're celebrating and Sheldrake looks back and she's gone. And Fran has gone over to, to Bud's apartment um, just after midnight. But when she gets there, she hears a loud bang come from inside the apartment. And of course, you know, we've seen the gun. We know his story. We know he's in a bad state. And Fran, just like us, fear the worst. Has Bud finally pulled the literal trigger? But Bud opens the door and revealing it was not, in fact, a gunshot. It was champagne popping. She, she comes inside. They, they sip the champagne. She says more or less that she's done with Sheldrake and is going to be with Bud. But meanwhile, Bud is uh, like professing his love. And, and a really great end, ending line that I have since read has become kind of iconic on its own. He's like, well, I, I adore you. I love you. What do you got to say? And she says, shut up and deal. And they pick up their game of gin rummy from when she had been staying at his place. And that wraps the film, The Apartment. 1960. Not the first time in the movie I wanted someone to tell him to shut up. <laughs> yeah. He's got the good stammering. I, he's, he's good. We'll talk about our feelings on, on Jack Lemmon in a minute. So as we kind of conclude that recap, uh, it makes me wonder, before we dive into our good things and not so good things, Nate, why did you pick The Apartment as a movie for us to watch? Was it just the New Year's component or was there something else in particular that kind of drew you to this as a discussion piece? Well, you mentioned wanting something holiday related, and that was part of it. Um, I also thought you'd be a fan of Wilder in general in this movie, if you weren't too familiar. But it's also a movie that I have kind of mixed feelings on, and I think there's a lot that I like and a lot that I don't. Um, and those are the most fun to talk about, you know. I'm not even totally sure, ultimately, how I do feel about it. So that's the kind of stuff where I like to talk about it with people and kind of help see what they think and help crystallize my feelings on it. Cool. Yeah. I, I was really glad I watched it. So on that note, some good things. I think overall the script is pretty amazing, especially the satirical elements, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, but there's just a lot of cleverness in it and a lot of good writing, good quips, good dialogue. There's a lot of stuff. I really like it when you see something or witness something or hear a line and that sets up something in the future in a sort of unpredictable way. And there's a lot of that in this. It just makes the whole thing feel really spry and enjoyable. It's funny without being, and, and even kind of jokey, but it's not like a too hard forcing the punchline type of jokey most of the time. And the whole thing just kind of steers this narrative in a pretty clear way. I thought it was pretty good writing, pretty excellent writing. I looked it up. The Writers Guild of America has it as one of the top 20 screenplays in 
American cinema history, which may be a bit of a stretch, but uh, I guess suffice it to say, I'm not the only one that thinks that this is, is a well-written script. The dialogue is sharp throughout, and I think it was a good decision to begin in medias res, where the situation with the apartment is already ongoing for some time. And we're kind of introduced to it in the middle of the action. You know, I didn't think too much about that, but I got to say, that's a good point. I agree. The intuitive thing would have been to have written how this kind of drone manages to get his way into these pockets and kind of set the whole thing up. But by just setting it out there at the beginning, it really allows us to like focus on the consequences of it and all the dominoes that fall, which is, I think, slightly more interesting drama. I don't know. Yeah, just going off all that, Wilder usually has good efficiency and economy in his scenes. Like, scenes end at the right place. He doesn't dawdle and linger. Like, once the, you know, once the key aspect of the scene is done, we move on. And that helps the movie. I think especially in the first half, it, it flows really well. Agreed. Maybe not as much in the second half, but we can get to that. One kind of verbal tick that I enjoyed and I thought it was used exactly the right amount for it to become memorable, but not annoying is how the, the weird way that, that uh, Bud Jack Lemon's character would structure sentences in an almost Yoda sort of way <laughs> and with wise afterwards. So the one that like gets real visibility and kind of meaning is he says, well, that's the way it crumbles cookie wise is a play on that's the way the cookie crumbles. And uh, that's something I think Fran repeats towards the end of the movie. And that, that's just one of those little uh, bits of writing that gives the script some good personality, I thought. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the satire component because I think that that works really well and is like very jarring and striking. It, it actually made me think of Network, where Network is about television and content and media and kind of how that's getting worse and worse in this modern age this one was really just about like corporate america and the working man and how it's it's interesting how at consolidated life the deeper in and higher up you are it's basically the sleazier you are and everything about the way that especially these executives but everyone we kind of see at the company works it's like a transactional amorality and it's just kind of appalling to watch, but it's treated as so routine and kind of unexceptional and just taken as a matter of fact, as a part of life that it basically drowns you in it. Oh, totally. It's, it's taken for granted that, yep, everyone's going to lie, cheat and steal and no one gets promoted for legitimate reasons. They all get promoted for BS reasons. And right. Like you said, the higher up you are, like the worse of a person you probably are. Um, and then the film tries to kind of marry that sentiment with the more romantic, you know, and the happy ending, you know, tries to do it both ways. And it's, you know, we can talk about whether it succeeds, but it's an interesting approach. Right. <clears throat> and I think we see Sheldrake at home with his kids on Christmas morning, playing with the new Christmas gifts and just being the leave it to beaver dad. And just that contrasted with everything that we already know about him, this striking split between what's depicted as wholesome family life and kind of the seedy other side of it that's exemplified by like everything that these people do related to their business and how that leads to all this amorality. It's, 
it's really compelling. And it, I guess like the struggle between that is kind of exemplified by these neighbors trying to figure out what is Bud's deal and what is he actually behind that, that closed door. The neighbors are kind of always changing their mind about him, making assumptions about him, guessing that he's this or that. And I don't know. That kind of wraps up my thoughts of the, the things that I really loved on the positive side on the script and the writing. Before we jump into some of the other things I liked about this movie, did either of you want to talk about the script or the writing any further? I mentioned I, I really think it captures that, that lonely feel of the holidays. I also think you really feel the emptiness of city life or sort of the, the pros and cons of city life, I suppose. Like, yeah, your apartment is about the size of a closet, but, you know, you can go see the music man and, you know, there's food around the block and there's things, there's fun New Year's parties and things to do. And I mean, I don't think either Fran or Baxter are probably cut out for the big city, really, but you can really see, you know, the pros and cons of it and just kind of what it's like living that life. Um, and just even that shot that you talked about before of, of him in the workplace, that just looks like a nightmare to me. Just those rows and rows, and rows of, of, of drones. It, like, oh, that's like my version of hell. But, <laughs> but it's a striking image and it you know, provokes a strong feeling. Agreed. So another thing I loved about this movie is I think the acting is, is really good all around. In particular, I think that Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, the two leads, are, are pretty amazing. Lemon manages to be charming, lovable. He's just fun to watch on the screen, but he's also never not pathetic and spineless, except for like a handful of moments when he kind of gets to be himself and a little more loose. But in general, he's always that kind of pathetic, weak thing. And he also can convey like the dread of the heartbreak and the grief of that. And he, I just thought he was awesome. And I can see why he was nominated for the award. Yeah, he's really likable and charming, like you said. He's funny throughout. And this is a little bit off into the weeds, but I wanted to give a little behind-the-scenes glimpse that while we were working on this episode, it was kind of going back and forth a little bit about what we would actually be talking about this week. And so I went about watching what's ultimately going to be a selection for another episode in the future. But another movie that is also about a sexless loser and that conflicted identity driving the plot along. That one turns out much less happily. There aren't quite enough parallels to justify a violent ends double feature. But we'll definitely be coming back to talking about the apartment when we get to that episode in a couple weeks. Well, are you going to share with the class? What was that? It's called A Bucket of Blood, directed by Roger Corman. And it was 1959, so a year before this one. But it's more of a joker or taxi driver type thing where the lead male role is is not as likable as Jack Lemmon here. Really more of a creep. I mean, Lemmon's kind of a creep here too sometimes. That's fair. It's true that it, I think a weakness of the film that we'll get to, and maybe this isn't a weakness necessarily, but it's like definitely something there is that we don't quite know what to feel about that character, in my opinion. I mean, 
from the outside, everything he does is basically as seedy and gross, if not more so than what the executives are doing. Yet he's also kind of this hapless guy. So I don't know. And he obviously were rooting for him and Shirley MacLaine too. So I don't know. Yeah, it's one of my holdups with the movie is I'm not sure the movie understands the ways that Lemon is kind of creepy and inappropriate. Like when he tells Fran that he like snooped in her personal records to find out all this personal information about her, does the movie understand that that's not okay? That I because I'm, I'm not sure that it does. I'm glad you brought that up because that moment kind of flew by and I had the exact same reaction. It's it's like peak thing that in a romantic comedy might attempt to be conveyed as cute but right. in real life is restraining order territory right to, to wrap up my positives on the acting though here because i do want to come around to these points for sure i i think lemon is is quite good acting i think mclean is even better honestly i agree um I, I i really liked her performance here she does a really good job of like mastering the nuances of that character who's easily the most kind of complex and fleshed out character. And she does so much of that with just her face, her expressions, the, the way she says things. I think it's, it's a fantastic performance that again was Oscar worthy. I agree. I, she's the best thing about the movie for me, honestly. Um, I think both she and McMurray are really good in this. And I think she gives her character some depth and, and some angles that, the rest of the movie doesn't necessarily do. One thing that was really striking to me last week, we watched a 19, I think 49 or 50 film noir called DOA. And I haven't seen all that many movies from like, I don't know, pre 1960, 1965 or earlier. I've seen some, but not all that many. But one thing that always strikes me as is like the women in that movie, movies that old, even if they're like fleshed out and beautiful and stuff, they, there's a certain otherworldliness about them just because of how different gender roles were then and how, I guess, bad men were at writing women and stuff. But I actually thought that Shirley MacLaine's character, Fran, felt like a person, like a person, modern, lovable person that I would potentially have a friendship with, you know, like not just this thing in a script. I don't know. I think there's some old movies that do better with that. I know what you're saying. Um, there's some that are better. I can, you know, I can always give you a list. I'll just reiterate that this did seem in some ways more modern than other things I've seen from 1960. Like they were really trying to be on the cutting edge and, and just make it kind of buck the code a little. And I mean, she's got the, the very short hair, and they just tried to make the dialogue conversational and it pops and, and just seems a little fresher than other things of the period. Yeah, and not only the short hair, but also you're meant to disapprove of Sheldrake when he doesn't like the short hair. You know, mm. he makes some comment about like, oh, I liked it better when it was long or whatever. And you're meant to be like, dude, like, don't be a dick. Like, it, like she can do whatever she wants with her hair. Right. You mentioned McMurray. Any other highlights of the acting for you? I mean, I just, I love him. I, I love him in, in Devil Indemnity. And he was also in this random noir called Pushover, where he's really good. So, yeah, to me, he's, he's great as, as a sleazy kind of guy. And he's very sleazy in this movie. Without overdoing it, I mean, there's no histrionics, but I just, I completely buy everything about his character. 
And like, I feel like a version of him is in <laughs> every office in America, probably now as much as in the 60s. And I said it already, but I remember Fred McMurray from various Disney movies. And here he does also spend a little bit of time as the, as you said, leave it to Beaver dad. So that's a role that he can slip into, but here we see that it's just a veneer. Right. I also wanted to point out uh, when we covered Kate and Leopold, they sort of wanted to flirt with the idea of Kate's boss being sleazy. And we, we opined that they did not lean into it nearly fully enough. That was not a problem here. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. They made, they made this boss thoroughly sleazy. So another thing I loved about this movie, beyond the script and the acting, I've already hinted at this a little bit. This is a, a visually striking movie. I thought it was just going to be a talky comedy without much happening on the, the visual front, but it's really striking. And most especially, the sets are phenomenal. We've talked about the sea of desks in the office, and Grant mentioned the cramped apartment, which I think is another just phenomenal. Like so You can feel the claustrophobia of that cramped apartment, and that aligns with how much it's kind of spiritually trapping bud baxter and it actually really made me think of parasite parasite is also similarly so effective with the sets and conveying what needs to be conveyed about the movie via the sets and there's the great visual of him having to use the tennis racket to straighten his spaghetti oh yeah that was that was pretty funny you know it's kind of a reverse of parasite and it happened on fifth avenue because here it is rich people coming to stay in the poor apartment because of the seediness that it allows them. Well, it's interesting. And there's a few moments in the visuals where it almost, you can tell that Wilder has experience with film noir, like really effective use of shadows. The black and white helps with that. Moments of it visually were like, oh wait, this is almost looks like a noir that I would be watching, you know? See, that, that's why this movie can't be in color. That's a good point. Yeah, that would not work nearly as well. So that kind of wraps up my overarching positive comments. I have a few little things I want to bring up, but I wanted to open the floor if you guys had other other things that you liked that you wanted to talk about here. I think we can move on. Okay. Yeah, I think we covered it. We've done a pretty good job of keeping it flowing. So I've kind of pointed out a few little things I've liked throughout the movie as we were kind of going through it. I really like Margie at the bar. And that this whole thing where he's like trying to rearrange the schedules of the people who are going to use his apartment, it's this oddly riveting like four minutes when he's just making phone calls and moving schedules around and like the cascading thing. I don't know. It, it doesn't really serve that much of a purpose, but it, I just enjoyed watching that for some reason. I recognize some character actors among the executives. We had Ray Wallstone, oh, yeah. I think his name is. Uh, of My Favorite Martian. Well, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. True. I think I uh, definitely recognize some, some Twilight Zone background actors. And, of course, we've got a Drunken Santa Claus, played by Perpetual Drunk, the same actor who was Otis on Andy Griffith. Do we have his name? Hal Smith. He also voices Owl in the... Winnie the Pooh cartoons. Really? Yeah. 
the last thing I kind of wanted to just opine on is the use of Auld Lang Syne. So I really love the song Auld Lang Syne. I like it more even than when I was in college. I went to UVA and it was our, not exactly our alma mater, but served a purpose similar to an alma mater song there with different words called the good old song. I kind of got tired of it there and got annoyed at how people, how much people were into the good old song there. So I kind of had a mixed relationship with it back in the day. But since then, I've really come to love this in, for a few reasons. So one is that the, the last scene of It's a Wonderful Life is one of like, I don't know, five maybe movie scenes in the world that I just cannot get through without tears running down my cheeks, happy tears running down my cheeks. Always. Mm-hmm. And uh, another reason I, I've come to love this song is because my favorite podcast of all time, I guess maybe perhaps this one, but my favorite podcast of all time is called The Anthropocene Reviewed, where uh, author John Green does 10-minute essays on different things. And it's like very poignant, often very informative. And the best episode of that is a double episode about Auld Lang Syne, which is actually just as much about one of his friends who died of cancer. And it's extremely moving. And again, tears, tears were running down my cheeks. And it has like a, an all-time chills moment for me where he, he's not a good singer, but he sings it himself at the end of the episode. And ever since then, I've felt like a really strong connection to, to Auld Lang Syne. So, and it's kind of weird here. It's like a, in this movie, it's a celebratory moment for everyone, but, she, but Fran leaves. So it's like a celebration in a different way for her because she's finally going to go be with, with Bud, with Baxter. So just a little tribute to Auld Lang Syne on my end. Yeah, after I watched this, I was humming the good old song in my head all night. <laughs> all right, I'm ready to move on to not, some not so good things or perhaps they can be mixed things. Does anybody have any points they want to lead this one off with? Yeah, so I wanted to kick off with something. Just that this whole movie felt like one extended nice guy meme to me. <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. o- only assholes get the girls. But here is Jack Lemon, and he's the nice one who's there all along. And wh- when will something work out for him? This, this whole thing is the Virgin Baxter versus the Chad Sheldrick. I mean, I'm not saying there's not necessarily a grain of truth to that, but uh, it's been played out, especially in the 60 years since. Yeah, she even says at one point, why can't I ever fall in love with a nice guy like you? Which, uh, yeah, not a fan <laughs> of that one. That's one we've heard a million times. I feel like the script is kind of smart enough to overcome that just a little bit. Like, it's almost kind of the point that this dude's just a pushover and but also bad, but in a different way. And I can see why you're coming from on that one though. Like it really does. He's just kind of pathetic the whole time. And it's not until he gets a spine that, that she comes around. I, I see what you're saying for sure. I think it's better if you, if you do recognize that he's bad and creepy in a lot of ways. That's why I was asking if the movie understands that some of his behavior is bad or not. Cause yeah, I think that makes it more interesting than just well, there's the one total asshole and the one super nice guy and who's she going to pick, you know? But it's more interesting if you think that both Baxter, well, both Baxter and Fran are quite flawed and quite weak. That, that's interesting. It, it kind of aligns with my overarching complaint with this film, which is that 
I think it's so good and so nasty with the satire that it it kind of deflates the romantic comedy aspect. I think this is kind of just in line with what you guys were saying. It's it's really hard for us to feel like Bud is really heroic. And even though the chemistry between the actors and actresses is good, it just kind of muddies up how we should feel about them and their relationship together. Like, I, I kind of feel like there's some good moments with the romantic comedy and the chemistry, but far overwhelmed by uh, <laughs> the rest of the plot, I would say. Well, let me ask you all this on that topic. Do you all buy them together at the end? In what sense? I mean, do you buy them as a couple at all? Do you think they're going to last more than five minutes? <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't thought I about think, it. I mean, I think she's in a better situation with Bud than she was with Sheldrake. But does that make it a good situation? I'm not sure. It does seem like, well, you know, you don't even really know where Bud is going in his life after this. Because one of the things that, I don't know, he had a nice steady corporate job that he left. Like, I mean, maybe I'm being too practical about this, but like, what is he, is he going to move somewhere? What is he going to do? She's only a elevator clerk. So it's not like she's going to be able to pay the bills. It kind of seems like that would very quickly put a strain on their relationship. Right. Well, he's got that resume now that says assistant uh, personnel handler. So he can go get a, uh, HR or uh, what is it? An on onboarding, offboarding job somewhere. Assistant to the personnel manager. <laughs> right. It's, it's it's definitely a you know they've you know he's rejected his capitalistic drive and he you know they both have more more noble goals at the end, right? You know, not just love and connection, but also self-respect and dignity and standing up for yourself. I just don't really buy them together at the end. Okay, I will say this. I didn't buy that she would have fallen for him. I, I don't see at what point that spark would like light in her eyes. I know it's like when he quits, but it doesn't feel like quite enough of a spark for me, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a little too pat for me. But then I have a related question, which is, did you see her together with Sheldrake making sense? Well, sort of, but I also wanted more there. I, I think someone mentioned this earlier, but I wanted more indications of why she's so into him. And I needed maybe a little bit more of the other side of Sheldrake. Like I can get it in concept, like he's the rich and powerful guy and okay, fine. But I, need to, I needed some indications of what have they done together? What fun times have they had together? Like, what have they shared together? Like, does he understand things about her that nobody else does? You know, does he have a, a generous or a soft side that comes out sometimes? I just needed something. I think that's a good comment, yeah. Although, otherwise, no, I don't really buy her, like, like extreme, extreme interest and devotion to children. I wanted to see more of the Christmas toys that he gave <laughs> to his family. Those space toys that his sons get. I think we've reached peak Brian comment. <laughs> I would bet that Pee Wee Herman has that same <laughs> space set from 1960. That seems plausible. So another thing I, I wanted to query your all's opinion on. I really had a hard time figuring out how I felt about 
the suicide attempt as a plot point and how it was kind of treated. It was very jarring for me because of how real it was. And I kind of get that it provides some stark thematic parallels to things that are going on and give us very much a visceral reason that they went through this and are kind of connected on that. And that's how he's able to kind of care for her and see a little bit behind what she is and stuff and gives her a dark edge. On the other hand, it was just like so jarring. And I don't know if out of place is the right word, but I don't know. I just couldn't figure out what to think about it. What, what was your take on this, Nate? It bugs me. <laughs> it's always bugged me. I, I think part of it might just be my own bias. I think suicide or attempted suicide is very difficult to make work in a movie. I struggle to think of too many movies that have had it that I like or where I like that part of it. Um, I just, especially because we don't really know why she loves Sheldrake so much, it just feels like it demeans her. And it feels like it kind of deadens the movie for me. She's laid up in bed for the next 25 minutes. It gives a bigger role to the doctor neighbor, but why? Like, I really don't need more of him. I don't know. I feel like it deadens it. And I feel like it makes her seem too weak. And it, it makes Lemon into a little too much of a, you know, the damsel rescuer sure. for my liking. It was definitely dark. I thought they did a good job. Once they decided that this was going to be something that happened in the movie, they did a decent job of tackling it realistically. I mean... I feel like Lemon's instincts were good in how to try to fix this when he suddenly finds her OD'd on the pills. It's like, okay, grab the doctor right away, do whatever he says, get her up, get her moving around. But yeah, I don't know that it necessarily belonged in what is otherwise a romantic comedy. The aftermath of where she's trying to figure out what she's going to call people and tell people and how they're going to treat it going forward to me was a, just a stark reminder of how far we've come on mental health and dialogue of mental health, even though we're not really all the way there, of course, but as a society, because that was one element that felt like it was written in 1960 and not anything more modern than that. Yeah, well, Dan, you mentioned liking uh, Baxter's story about him almost, you know, sort of trying to kill himself. And I agree. And I think it this might have worked a lot better if like they could have just talked about it. Like if she hadn't done that, but she talked about considering it at one point and he could have mentioned that he considered it and totally messed it up at one point. Like they could have gotten into that stuff, but I, I don't know that she should have gone through with her. Yeah. Attempt. I think it kind of, yeah. I think it kind of deadens things and it makes the second half drag. Oh, that was one question I had was, did this movie need to be two hours and five minutes long? Thought she could cut just a little bit. I mean, it, it it flowed, but I thought it could be a little more compact. Yeah, I was surprised at how Brit, I mean, Grant alluded to how one of Wilder's writing strengths, and I haven't seen enough of his to make this assertion myself, but I definitely saw it here, his economy of writing scenes and getting the plot going. Because you're only like 10 or 15 minutes in when like basically all the dominoes are set up at, at that point. Mm -hmm. And it just happens really quickly. And then things slow down 
but I never thought it got too languid or dreary. I mean, I guess the part that we've just been talking about might be that. I don't know. I, normally, if a movie is two hours long, like that's the point when my brain is like, okay, this is too long. And I start checking my watch unless it's really riveting. Um, and this was kind of right around that. I I didn't feel it being too long, but in general, <laughs> comedies should not be more than two hours long as a rule of thumb. And I think this movie probably could have been just as good, if not better, if it trimmed off a little bit of the fat. Yeah, I just want more of Baxter and Fran getting to know each other, especially if we're supposed to buy them at the end as running off into the sunset together. And her being laid up in bed for 20 minutes kind of hurts that. And then they're sort of getting into that after she's recovered. And then her brother-in-law comes and takes her away, which I didn't really see the, the need for him at all. That's interesting, yeah. I thought there would be, there would have been more impact to that if he was her brother and not her brother-in-law. Yeah, I can see that. Huh. Yeah, because it's sort of like, yeah, why are you here? Like, why? <laughs> so the one thing I want to say on the ending that I kind of took away is I don't really see it as like a, a walk off into the sunset, at least in like a very clean black and white set. It reminded me a little bit of, it's not exactly this, but it reminded me a little bit of The Graduate and how that ends with like, a, okay, what the hell is going to happen now? And that's kind of sort mm -hmm. of an impactful, intentional thing. Um, there's a little bit of that here, which I think is kind of exemplified by the fact that he's like trying to profess his love and she just is like, let's play cards like we were when things were good with us. And to me, that is kind of, it didn't bother me quite as much, even though I said, I feel like overall the romantic comedy pieces in a strong I actually didn't hate the ending and kind of how that worked. I mean, I do agree we, it would be much more effective as a romantic comedy and that ending would be more effective if we saw more of them together. I, I don't like it when movies keep the romantic, romantic comedies at least, keep them apart as a plot point. That doesn't work for me, really. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like in the first half, most of her scenes are with Sheldrake. And then in the second half, she's in bed after eating a bunch of sleeping pills for a while, you know, so there's not a lot of time for her and Baxter to just be together. You yeah, know? I think that's reasonable. We only get a couple of scenes of that and he's mostly kind of pestering her during those scenes. <laughs> right. But I, I totally agree with you that I do think the ending works better if you don't take it as, yeah, a perfect happily ever after. And, you know, they've distanced themselves from Sheldrake, both of them and, you know, that'll be good for them long-term and we'll see what happens with their lives, but maybe them being together isn't in the cards. My last negative point is one that I have already brought up, but I'm going to bring it up again because it notably diminished my enjoyment of this film, which is the whole sequence where he has a cold and he's snotty and everything. Just, <laughs> um, but yeah, any other things that you guys wanted to shout out? something that we haven't talked about that didn't really work for you or that diminished the film for you. Brian, you got anything? Well, I'd say overall it still ranks fairly highly. Even with the darkness and any of the oddity that we talked about, it, it's still fairly brisk. I'm ready pretty soon now to throw a rating on this thing. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's a good tr transition. So let's move to our signature section. Is it good? Where each of us will give this movie a goodness rating. We have an eight-point goodness scale. And just as a refresher for our listeners, and since Nate is a first-time guest, I'm just going to go through what those eight are. 
very not good at the bottom of the rung. That's one. Two is not good. Three is not not good. So you probably wouldn't say it's good, but you wouldn't say that it's not good. Four is good-ish. And those are the ones where we say it is not good. Then we jump into the upper half, numbers five through eight. Five is good. Six is very good. Seven is exceptionally good. And the top eight out of eight is tour day good, which is play on tour day force. We talked about renaming some of these or redoing this. Never got around to it. I feel like it's stuck around enough that it's going to continue to stick around. But that is top tier, tour day good, eight out of eight. So... Let's do Brian. Usually the, the guests go first. So when I was watching this, there were times I was thinking, oh, this is going to be exceptionally good. And I'm thinking back through what picks I've thrown exceptionally good seven out of eight on. And actually, in retrospect, I think it's mostly been my picks, which is clearly just bias. I did give, I believe, a seven out of eight to 12 Monkeys, which was a Dan pick. I don't know. This doesn't quite grab me in that same way but it's easily a very good for me very strong writing a sense of flow throughout the story i thought it was a wise choice to go with the in medias res jump in and i was entertained the characters were distinctive they all had their role to play i think that's where it falls for me somewhere in the six spectrum of very good all right thanks nate your turn Okay, well, I'm not an expert on this rating scale. I'm not, I haven't been perfectly calibrated to the, to this system yet, but I think I'll go with a five, which I think was like good, standard good, I believe. Um, I think there's a lot of good here, especially in the first half of the movie. I just want to know a little more about Fran and kind of what she wants and why she's doing what she's doing. And I don't really want her to try to kill herself. <laughs> and yeah and I, I i need to buy the ending a little bit more for it to be higher but it's definitely good so i'll give it a five all right so we've got a very good a good it comes to me i really like this movie i liked it a lot i really enjoyed watching it and as i there were parts where i was watching it especially during the setup where I was like actually thinking, am I going to walk away and give this movie my second ever eight out of eight tour day good? And then I kind of thought a little bit more about some of the things as the movie was wrapping up. And I was like, you know, it's not quite an eight out of eight for me. And so I've been pretty solidly in the seven out of eight as, as I was prepping for this episode, we did point out a lot of things about this movie that give me pause as we talked through it. I almost want to go down to a six, but I'm not, I'm going to stick with my instincts, stick with my guns here. I really love this movie. I love watching it. I love the writing. I loved how dark it was, how funny and biting the satire was. It's just sharply written spry. It makes me want to watch more Billy Wilder, his comedies. It's also just a well-made film. It's not just like a comedy and it's not just a satire. It's, it's just, it's a movie. It's a motion picture with good direction and cool sets and just a lot of invention and I'm, I'm I guess I'm higher on it than you guys I'm giving it a seven out of eight exceptionally good I can see why people think it's a masterpiece and and now that we've talked through it I can also see why you guys would give it a slightly lower rating but uh yeah there we go well I definitely check out some more Wilder if you like this one yeah I will for sure it, this has opened my eyes a little bit all right that wraps up our thoughts on The Apartment 1960 Written and directed by Billy Wilder. It was a good discussion. Thank you for joining us. 
Now, Nate, the way we normally end these things is two final things. One is we all have a brief moment to opine on if we have any other parting thoughts unrelated to this movie, maybe something we've watched recently that we've thought about or enjoyed or not enjoyed, something we've been doing, something that's been on our mind. It's kind of an open slate and you are welcome to or not to provide any of these parting thoughts. Um, I'll go first. My parting thought, oh, go ahead. So I'll kick off my, my parting thoughts. I've been trying to take a deeper look at film history. And the way that I've decided to do that is pull a book. It's 1001 movies to see before you die. Oh yeah. And I think it's been updated a few times and I've been actually impressed at their selections. It's a good blend of like artsy masterpieces and popcorn cinema and influencers and oddities and so it's given me a fun starting place, but it's been very slow getting through it, in part because I've been trying to do it chronologically. After two kind of like very short proto films from the 1900s, it gets to the D.W. Griffith three-hour epics of the mid-1910s and later, including just the absolutely brutal to watch, Birth of a Nation, the first American film that on a craft level, you could call a masterpiece, but the story that it is in service in, especially the second half of it is basically pro-racism, KKK. It's, it made me queasy to watch. I wrote a review of it. Listeners, feel free to find me on Letterboxd and uh, check out my review. Kind of, I tried to articulate some of that in a review for Birth of a Nation. And I will try to write many reviews of each of the 1001 movies that I see, although it will be a long time before it's movies that we recognize uh, as I do that. So that, that's my... So you're going through like one by one in order? That's the idea. We will see if I lose steam on that. It, the next one mm-hmm. is a seven hour French serial, which might be the thing that makes me determine that this is too much of an ask. <laughs> makes you realize that you need a new strategy? <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> What about you, Nate? Any anything interesting you've watched recently, or anything on your brain that you want to share? Sure. Um, I love old movies. We we talked about the noirs, but I've been watching a lot of old screwball comedies from the '30s and '40s lately, and I'm always happy to give those a shout out. Um, if anyone's ever interested in movies like this, they're really good. They're really well made. They're frankly they're funnier and sharper and better written than most modern movies. Um, the Awful Truth is fantastic. Bringing Up Baby is fantastic. My Man Godfrey, uh, The Thin Man. The Thin Man is a series. It's one of my favorite film series of all time. Um, I just read the book, actually, by Dashiell Hammett that the first movie was based on. The stars of that series, William Powell and Myrna Loy, are basically my idols in life. <laughs> but there were so many good. I mean, Cary Grant was in a bunch of good ones. Very, very much recommended. So what were, can you, the starting points, if we were to, let's say that you are hypothetically someone who has never seen a screwball comedy or not sure whether or not he's seen it. Are those the ones you would start with? Yeah, let me see. I I would say Libeled Lady. I'd say The Awful Truth, Bringing Up Baby for sure. My Man Godfrey. Ooh, that's probably, that's probably, a good place to start with those. Yeah. 
Awesome. That's a good thought. Uh, thank you for interesting. Maybe I'll try to cue one of those up at some point. Oh, uh, Lady Eve also mm. add to the list. One thing else I'll add real quick about those is we talked a little bit about the, the gender roles in the apartment. And one thing I find really notable about a lot of these screwballs, even though they're from the 30s and 40s, the female characters seem a lot more well-rounded and have a lot more agency than in a lot of movies you see nowadays. That's interesting. And, yeah. And the actresses really stand out in that um, which is something I really appreciate. That's cool, yeah. Well, thanks for that. And now I think Brian's going to give us a little bit of a preview on what he and I will be discussing next week. So next week, we'll be recording on my birthday, January 20th, and it's going to be our 20th episode. As we've planned the show, Dan has said a couple times that we should really play up birthdays somehow, do something special for birthdays. And it's been kind of ambiguous what that is going to be, but... I have decided to select my go-to birthday movie, and we will be having another special guest next week. My brother will be joining us, my brother Andrew, who has his birthday January 27th. And the film that we will be watching is a documentary called The Rockafire Explosion about the history of the Chuck E. Cheese robot band. So very apropos when you're talking birthdays, and it's one that we both saw around our birthdays and has really brought us together. And so I think it's going to be a good time. Be ready for that. Be ready to pull out a slice of cake and jam to some anthropomorphic animatronic robot sounds. I have no idea what to expect with this. I'm looking forward to talking with you and your brother on this. So thanks everybody for joining us on the goods. Yeah, this has been really fun. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I was really glad to have you on, and I think we had a really good time. And maybe we could do it again sometime in the future. This was good. Absolutely. This is my first time doing a movie podcast like this, but it was great, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, as always, thank you very much, listeners. Feel free to find us on Letterboxd. Hit up our website, thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. Until next week, have a good week, everyone. Bye.